We're in a series called By Faith, um, and uh, the whole thing obviously is wrapped around the idea of that the center of every basic religion in the world, um, there's this idea of faith, or as George Michael said, you got to have the faith. Yeah, thank you, thank you, appreciate that. Um, Or as Limp Biscuit said, you got to have (laughs) Thanks, somebody kind of did that. Um, Anyway. Um, it's all about this idea of faith, and faith is a little bit misunderstood. Faith is a little bit misconstrued. If we were all to come up with a communal definition of faith, um, probably what most of us would attribute to faith is simply belief, that faith is belief. And for some of you, um, you would say faith was given to me when I was younger. For some of you, you would say um, faith is, is kind of just this a, a wishes and a hopes and a dreams, and I'm just going to you know, kind of step out into the, into the realm of illogic and you know, non-reason, and, and I'm going to trust in something that I can't see, and it just seems a little bit crazy and mystical to you. Um, but I was thinking about this idea of faith when I first became a Christian and put my trust and my belief in Jesus. I was talking to a good friend of mine, and as our discussion went, you know, he was saying, "Man, I just that's that's so incredible of what you know you've kind of come to the conclusion that you've come to come to." Um, I just don't have that much faith. And as many of us think about it, faith is really close to athleticism. Um, Some people seem to just be born with it, and some people just aren't. Some people, it just comes easy, and it comes natural, and it's not that big of a deal. Um, For some of us, it's just, it's it's painstakingly difficult. It's a long process, and you just don't see how anybody can place their faith or their hope and their belief. But what's interesting about faith as a whole is faith is so much more than a belief. In fact, when you read, or as we have read through Hebrews chapter 11, it is the heroes of faith chapter. It talks all about these men of extraordinary faith and some women of extraordinary faith. And as it goes through and it parses out the things that describe their faith, none of them almost describe a belief, but almost all of them it talks about what they did. In other words, faith as described in the Bible is an action that accompanied a belief, or that a belief naturally spurred into action. And what's, what's kind of fascinating, again, about, about faith itself, is that if many of you were to talk about our past experiences with faith, especially if you're at the point where you're questioning Christianity, trying to figure out God on the periphery of Jesus and the Bible and all of that, and as you've talked about faith, probably your interaction with faith was faith was simply an answer to a question that someone didn't have the answer to. That you said, well, the Bible says this in that part A, and it says this in part B, and those seem to go against each other. And so how do you make sense of that? And they said, you know, you just got to have faith. Well, what about all these other documents? Well, you just got to have faith. Well, what about, you know, this and what about that? And can a guy really live in the belly of a big fish, a.k.a. a whale, for three days, you know? And they just said, you know, you just got to have faith. And he just thought, you know, no, you're just saying you just got to turn off your brain. So our experiences with faith are all over the map. But what's undeniable is throughout the scriptures, there were men and women of such extraordinary conviction to their belief that they took action in ways that made sense to no one around them and that to some degree seemed to dwarf our faith. But what's wonderful about this is as Hebrews goes and begins to describe each person's faith, It doesn't simply stop at what they did from time to time. It opens up a window and talks a little bit about the why behind what they did. 
which is very important. And so basically what we've been doing over this series is going through each of those little breaks in the action when the, when the writer begins to say, and this is why they did this, for us to help, which helps us to understand why they did it and how we can then have a similar faith. So if you got your Bible, um, we are going to be opening up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 17 this morning where we left off last week. Hebrews chapter seven or 11, verse 17. It introduces a gentleman by the name of Abraham who's been talked about a little bit before. And it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now let me give you a a quick background of what happened. Abraham was kind of the OG of the Old Testament. Uh, He was the guy who uh, God basically said, I'm going to create a people, I'm going to create a nation, I'm going to create an entire you know, family that's going to eventually turn into a nation that's eventually going to give birth to the lineage of who will be the Messiah who we would come to know as Jesus. He says, and there's going to be so many descendants that they outnumber the stars in the sky. The problem was Abraham, as many of you know, was a little bit older. In fact, he started to get older and older and older. He had a kid um, when he was in his, most people say, 90s, okay, now, parents in here. You know how ridiculous that is, one, just like the mechanics of it, but beyond that, like, right, you might have had a kid in your, like, late 20s, early 30s, you know, and that was, that was, like, unintentional, and then you turned about 45, and you had a kid, and you're like, ah, what, you know, that wasn't like, oh, God, fulfillment of the promise, that was like, God, I promised I would not have any more, and I got another kid, you know, well, at 90 years old, Abraham has a kid, but along that path, Abraham started to question God, or he started to kind of Try to take the promise of God that you were going to have a descendant and take responsibility to fulfill that promise of God. And so his wife, actually, Sarah, came to him and said, you know, Abraham, perhaps God's providential plan in this whole thing is that you would have a son, but maybe it wouldn't be through me. Um, Maybe it would be through Hagar, or as from the south, we pronounce Hagar, you know? Maybe it's through Hagar, and and that she is going to be the one. So maybe you should lie with Hagar, and that you should have a son with her. She's a lot, you know, younger and all this kind of stuff, which I'm sure Abraham was like, no, you know? Um, So so Abraham, you know, has a son, and that son's name is Ishmael. Now, if you're familiar with world religions, then you would know that um, much of the nation of Islam would eventually trace their roots back to um, Ishmael, and back to the Old Testament and Abraham through that way. It's kind of a side story, but you should Google that at some point. So Abraham decides to take responsibility, but then at some point you know, realizes that that's not the way, eventually has a son, Isaac. And God one day, as Isaac is growing up, and Isaac's you know, pretty old at this point, or Abraham's pretty old at this point, decides or hears God say that, Abraham, you need to go and sacrifice your son, Isaac. Now, Isaac is not like a toddler at this point. Isaac's about 13 years old. This is how I know Abraham is a better parent than I am, okay? I want you to imagine, you're about to go sacrifice your 13-year-old son, and you're about 100 years old. It's like, you know, you're sitting there trying to, like, get the rope out, you know? And it's like, Dad, what are you doing? He's on his cell phone the whole time, you know? He's like, Dad, what are you doing? And it's like, oh, nothing. I'm gonna, we're going to, hey, son, come here. Let me see your leg. You know, and he starts, like, wrapping him up. Yes, Father. (laughs) Again, he's a better parent than I am. So uh, he actually gets to the point where he has his son bound up on the altar, gets his knife out, and is about to kill his son because God has, in fact, told him to do that. And God says, stop. And let me tell you, when we hear that story, 
we read into that, that, oh my gosh, Abraham would be willing to sacrifice so much, which is true. But what's fascinating is Abraham's calculation in his decision to sacrifice his son was not based on his overwhelming ability to sacrifice. It was based on his overwhelming confidence in God. And here's what I mean in the very next verse as he continues. He says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, this was a promise of God that he was going to bless, was in the act of offering up his only son, verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, this is fascinating. This meant that it wasn't just general lineage. It was specifically through Isaac. It was specifically going to happen through Isaac. To which if God ever called me to do that and said, you know, Ben, I'm going to give you a son, and through that specific son, I'm going to create this nation, and now I want you to kill that son. I say, God, if you're going to create a lot of descendants out of my descendant, I first have to have a descendant. But Abraham knew that it was through Isaac that God was going to fulfill the promise, which is the key and important detail in understanding why, as he explains it in the very next verse. Verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, this is, this is so important. It wasn't that Abraham was just so dumb, he just thought, okay, I'm going to kill him. Abraham made, it a, made a calculated decision. In fact, the, the second word in that, in that whole verse that he considered uh, is a, in the Hebrew a business term that they would use as kind of a calculation. It was more of like an accounting term. It was more of a financial term. It was almost to credit it to an account. So Abraham kind of sat back and he thought about it. He reasoned through it and he came to the conclusion. This was his conclusion. Not that I'm just going to sacrifice and I'll be willing to. It's that I believe that God has promised this. And God has called me to be obedient. But in that, God is the one that's responsible for fulfilling the promise. And I don't really understand this, but here's what I know. That I have a God who is faithful and I have a God who is powerful. And I have a God who has promised that it is God's job to keep God's promises, not my job to take responsibility for God's promises. And so I believe that God is strong enough and powerful enough that if God wants to, if he has called me to kill my son, then God will bring him back to life. Let me unpack the principle for a second. Because for many of us, as it comes to faith, one of the reasons that we don't act in faith is because we think we're more responsible for the outcomes than we are. But here's, here's what's interesting. If you looked at the Old Testament you know, a lot, then you would know this. Almost every time a person tried to take responsibility to say, okay, God, I know you have promised that you will fulfill this, but it is based on my ability to achieve the outcomes of your promise. Almost every single time it got messed up, including in Abraham's life. The time when Abraham decided, I'm going to take this all into my own hands, you know what happened? He had a son, Ishmael. Because throughout the Old Testament, this is a story. Now, let me break this down on a practical level because that's kind of principled. So let me tell you how this matters and applies to us. 
We've been talking over the last couple weeks about different ways that we have faith and we exercise faith. And if you're in here and you you believe in Jesus, um, there's some things that we all know are like the big faith that God's called me to do something weird or wacky. You're just, you know, kind of, it's in the gray and it's not clear to find the word. But there's a lot of stuff that God calls us clearly to through his word. Over the last couple weeks, we've talked about just the idea of sharing our faith. I was talking to a buddy of mine. Uh, yesterday on the phone, who is a pastor, he's not over a church, but he's an associate pastor of a church, but he's, he was preaching today, and he was, he's given a sermon on um, sharing your faith, being a light, that type of thing, letting your light shine. He said, you know, my problem is, is when it comes to sharing your faith, everybody knows they sh- they're supposed to do it, everybody hears a sermon about it, everybody feels convicted about it, and then nobody goes out and does anything. Because here's the deal. As, I, as we started to unpack that, I said, man, Here's what I have realized. It's because we think God fulfilling his promises are based on our ability and our responsibility to fulfill his promises. In other words, when it comes to sharing your faith, when it comes to talking to people about Jesus, when it comes to helping the gospel to go and the gospel to spread, other people to come to know Jesus, um, oftentimes we don't even engage because we think that it is based on our ability and our responsibility to be able to clearly articulate the confines of, a go- of the gospel in a way that's effective. Now, Jesus specifically said, as he was talking to Peter, he talked to, he talked to all of his disciples. He said, who do you guys say that I am? Peter says, we believe that you're, you know, I believe that you're the, the son of the, you know, the, the Lord, the son of the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he said, very good. On that, I will build. On that statement, I will build my church. In other words, he is going to build his church. His church wasn't a church building. His church was a following. He said, on that statement, I will build my church. But for some reason, as Christians in 2018, we think it's our responsibility to build his church so we don't engage in the process because of the fact that we take responsibility for the outcomes. Now, he has called us to be obedient to his calling, but not responsible for the outcomes. It's his job to keep his promises. And it's my job simply to be obedient to his calling. Now, to be clear, too, Christians, when it comes to sharing our faith, we get super wacky about it. And I almost hesitate to share all this, but this is kind of an aside because I just think it it needs to be said. What we, what, how we internalize that is that someone's just got to make this like really weird statement at a really awkward time, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, man, I just got to share my testimony with like everybody in the world. And so what we do is we just find really goofy and wacky ways to do that. Um, for me, it's a lot of like just talking to people, having conversations, asking questions. Um, but let me give you some examples like as Christians. Maybe you're watching like the Florida State game yesterday. Um, where we dismantled Boston College. And, you know, you're watching, you know, Trent Forrest, and he just, you know, crosses somebody up. And you're like, oh, dude, speaking of the cross, I've got to tell you about Jesus, you know? It's like, dude, we're watching the game. You know, you're at, you're at a business meeting, and you're looking over financials, you look at the balance sheet, and you're like, oh, by the way, did you know that your sin, you know, you're, the, the, the good doesn't outweigh the bad and the balances of justice and eternal life, that you have eternal separation from God? And they're like, we're trying to figure out how to make a profit. And you're like, I'm glad you said that. Did you know that a gain, a profit demand nothing if he gains the world but loses his soul? You're like, stop. You know, could be just could be a weirdo. Um, 
But the thing is, it's like that you actually care about people. You actually engage with people. You actually find out. Let me, let me hear your story. What do you think? What do you believe? Tell me, just tell me all about you because I really genuinely, whether you ever believe what I believe or not, care about you. And that's, that's, that's different, but that is so much of what spreading and sharing the love of Jesus is like. And yeah, you speak. Yeah, you have those opportunities, but it's a lot more, for me, question-based type of stuff than it is just awkward, like, let me find the most really weird way to transition into spirituality. But the point is, we don't engage because we think it's dependent on us and our ability. And God, the writer of, of, of Hebrews says, you know, no, no, no. Abraham realized that it was God's job to keep God's, to keep God's promises. And all Abraham was to do was to be obedient. Let me say this. There are many areas for us as Christians where we are disobediently acting and behaving. And the reason is not because we're not well-intended. It's because we put too much responsibility on ourselves to achieve outcomes and again, every time that happened in the, in the Bible, I mean, every time in the Old Testament that happened, or just about, and I say just about just because, like, there's somebody in here who's like, man, in Nahum, this is actually what happened. So we get it. Get over yourself. But, you know, for the most part, it is almost always, as people take too much responsibility, that I am going to try to, in my own power, fulfill the promises of God. It just gets wonky. And so he continues on and starts to shotgun out some different people who did some extraordinary things in faith. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings of Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Now, to, this begins to launch into kind of the redemptive history of Israel. And it says, you know, this guy had this son who had this son who had this son. Lots of sons happened, lots of daughters happened, the, nation became, uh, the, the, the family became a nation, they became enslaved by Egypt, many of you are familiar with this story, they became enslaved by Egypt, um, the Egyptians would, would basically persecute them harder, as they were persecuted harder, they would just multiply, persecute harder, multiply, persecute harder, multiply, and eventually this guy would be born named Moses, Moses would be kind of sent out among the reeds, so it talks talk about Moses' parents. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, this is, Moses probably wasn't beautiful as a child, but his parents thought so, you know? It's like, Moses' parents are like, oh, he's so cute, you know? So, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing, rather, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now this, this is like the goal to get to the point that Moses is at as Hebrew recounts it. That he would look at all of the things that he could have. That he would look at all the stuff. In fact, he's going to talk about a little bit more in the next verse. That Moses being raised in Pharaoh's house under Pharaoh's daughter was now basically a equal to the king of Egypt. And in fact, if the king of Egypt 
died, Moses could easily become the king of the most powerful nation on the world. And Moses decides that even though he has access to the greatest life ever, he chose instead to have a difficult life than the fleeting pleasures of sin. He reiterates in the next verse what this means. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. So so he considered the reproach of Christ, and essentially what that means is they're looking through a New Testament lens and saying the the same way that the people of God, that that Jesus himself would, would have great afflictions, people who have followed God have gone through great afflictions in their life, and that he considered that of greater wealth Again, he used that that word consider. That's the calculated word to decide and say, hey, it is a decision that I am making. I am taking everything into account, and I have decided it is of greater worth. Let me tell you one of our problems. We don't consider it greater worth to look at eternity over what's happening temporally. And it gives the key to it on the back half of that verse where it says for, or the reason why is because he was looking forward. He was looking for the reward. In other words, Moses saw that later is longer. Moses saw that later is greater. Moses saw that later is better. Moses saw that I could enjoy myself right now in the moment. But as I look across the span of eternity, as I look across the span of my life, as I look at a God who sits in eternity, then I know that no matter what I could enjoy temporally right now, later is longer, and I have my eyes fixed on what is eternal, not on what is temporal. This is a really, really difficult thing in this place that Moses got to, where he was able to just you know, say, man, I could have anything. I could have anything. He could have any of the riches. But he made a decision. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't wild. He doesn't have some kind of weird sadistic tendency that he needs to self-inflict, you know, difficult times and wounds on himself. No, Moses just genuinely thought and believed. As I look at God, I have decided that if I get God, everything else is worthless. And this is the only thing that matters. And so if I have to, to, I have to go through some affliction, if I have to go through some pain, man, that is so worth it. But it's not because I have this blind faith, this blind idea. It's not because I don't, have, you know, I don't have an answer to a question that I don't have the answer to. It's because of the fact that I believe so strongly in this God that nothing else matters. And so I'm just looking to the reward. Talks about how this looked in a little bit of a different light in the next verse. That verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of anger of the king. For he endured, endured, as seeing him who is invisible. If you were here week one, you remember that this was part of the definition or part of the description of faith. In chapter 11, verse 1, the tail end of the description of faith is faith is the conviction of things not yet seen. Faith is the conviction of things not yet seen. Faith is acting 
boldly. Though you can't see it, you believe it and have a conviction so deeply about it. And not just in mystery, but in God himself. In Jesus himself. Continues to shotgun a bunch of different ideas of people who, who lived and who were of faith in the next couple of verses. By 28. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Verse 29. By faith they crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Verse 30. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Verse 31. By faith Rahab the prostitute. Kids, close your ears. You know, Rahab the lady of the night. <clears throat> What did you call her? Rahab, you know, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given them, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And I love how it starts off where we're going to pick up next week in verse 32. <laughs> and what more shall I say? He's like, come on, there are so many people who have made the decision that, you know what, I am going to not trust in myself. I'm not going to trust in my own ability, but I am going to trust the fact that if God said it, it's true. Now, we have a distinct advantage, one, because we have Jesus, but two, because we have God's word, because for them, all they have is this just basic belief, this is what God's telling me to do. It doesn't even communicate how God communicated to them that they were supposed to do these things, but we have a direct set of commands and ideas through scripture of what God has called us to do every single day. But we get so wrapped up in what happens here and now. We get so wrapped up in what happens on the temporal. We just see each other. We see stuff. We see things. We see shiny. And all of a sudden, we just run to it. And then we think, okay, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I need to take control of this situation. I need to fulfill this promise of God and not believe and trust and have faith in God that it is his business to, put, to fulfill his promises, not mine. I am simply obedient to the call of God. Let me tell you the problem is, I wish... I was like the perfect example of this. That I could stand up, you know, as Paul said so boldly, you know, follow me as I follow Christ, because let me tell you, I, just, I have this down. But the reality is, man, this is, this is so difficult. Because everything else is right in front of our face. And we would love to ultimately just declare dependence on God. We would love to, at the same time, just trust that he is the fulfiller and that all we have to do is be obedient and we just trust. We would love to think, okay, God, the reward, the reward, heaven, God, that I can look back at Jesus and I can look forward to heaven with you. And God, nothing else matters. But here's the problem. In the daily, this is so difficult. In fact, I, um, I got, as I was prepping for this, um, kind of a lot of how I do my uh, sermon prep is I spend a lot of time just reading over and trying to understand the verses and, and wrestle with them and think about them. What's the author trying to communicate? What was the original audience? What was the attention? On and on. So I do that, and then I kind of give myself a little bit of space to process it. So uh, I read it, read it, read it, and then I try to think, okay, what does that mean to me? What does that mean to us? Give myself a little space and then kind of come back to it. Kind of like similar if you're ever, you know, practice a musical instrument. You practice for a while and you give it some space, come back to it, fresh eyes type of thing. So I'm going through and I'm reading this and I'm just seeing, you know, man, he had his eyes on the reward. He had his eyes on the future for he was looking for, you know, on and on about eternity. Um, and then I do what many of us do, or perhaps only I do, but I think there's probably a few people in here. Um, I have this wonderful version of escapism called realtor.com app. Anybody wants to be with me on that? You just like when life, when you like don't want to think about anything, you just look at houses that you could never afford, you know? And you like start going through and seeing stuff and it's just like, oh yeah, I, I think that neighborhood, we could live, honey, what do you think, you know? 
And it's just, <laughs> dude, I, let me just be honest here for a second. Um, I'm also the type of person where I, I'm like, I'm pretty all or nothing. And so I'm like, man, I will live in a shack until, the, until we can buy like a $5 million house. Now, I will probably never, I, I will, but, but anyways, it's one of those things where like, I'm sitting there looking, and, and, and this, this is not a lie. Um, I was reading through these verses. Actually, I had, I had prepped, I had done a bunch of stuff, and then I came back at nighttime, and I was kind of reading through the verses, and, and I was reading through it, and I was kind of just thinking about this and letting it, you know, sift through, and I said, okay, you know, I'm going to come back to it and think about it a little bit more, and I pulled up Realtor.com, and I started looking at this, like, million-dollar house in town, and I'm like, man, that's a great house. Like, I'm trying, and, and I don't know if you've ever done this. There are things that you have no business thinking about, but you start thinking about it, like, how can we do that? And you start, like, justifying it, or it's like, the kids need a yard, you know? It's the most ridiculous thing. You like start looking at like, oh, look at those countertops. Like, oh, because our countertops get kind of scraped up. So I probably need that countertop. And by the way, if you have a million-dollar house, we love you, and that, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you can give at downtowncommunitychurch.com again, okay? So <laughs> the thing is, is I start looking through this, and, I, and, and seriously, like, I'm, try, I'm like starting to like try to figure out how to scheme like how many years of saving and investing and saving and investing and, you know, all this kind of stuff until perhaps, you know, how many houses would I have to get and sell at an appreciated value? And I'm, 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 I'm trying to figure out timeline, like, like how reasonable is this to happen? And it's the most ridiculous thing that I have no business thinking about. But at the same time, I'm sitting there thinking about it. And this, this is the thought I had. This is exactly the problem. Because we have our eyes on eternity and all of a sudden something super shiny shows up and we're just thinking, I got to have that. Because it's right in front of our face. So let me tell you the point of this entire sermon. None of this is new information. None of this did you come into, if you're, if you're a Christian, you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, did you walk in not knowing that it is God's responsibility to fulfill his promises? None of us walked in this brand new information to think that I need to have my eyes focused on the eternity, not on the temporal. That is almost intuitive in the Christianity. I want to give you the practical. This is why I think, and here's the bottom line of this whole thing. This is why I think spending time with God every day is so extraordinarily important. Because when I spend time with God, it takes my focus off of right here and on to eternity. When I spend time reading his word, and when I spend time in prayer, it shifts my focus. That my relationship, my adoration for my heavenly father shifts. And all of a sudden, all the things that consume what happens, the fires that you're putting out every day, if you're in you know, the, the government, if you're in the state, if you are in you know, small business, big business, I mean the family life, whatever it is, if you're in you know, work or you're in school, you've got a hundred tests, you've got a million things going on, there's relationships that are swirling, and everything's just screaming, screaming, screaming at your face. It quiets the noise and puts into perspective for me. Eternity and dependency. You see, when I was younger, and I would talk about spending time with God, or quiet times is the kind of the Christian term for it. When I'd talk about or think about spending a, a, your time reading His Word, and again, that's a Christian way of saying the Bible, and spending time in prayer, my thought would always be, man, I just gotta, you know, man, I gotta get something out of it. That the point is to get something out of it. Let me tell you, that is not the point. 
You might. From time to time, yeah, you read something and it's just so, just so for exactly where you are. There's times when you pray and it's just so exactly where you are. There's times that you learn this new, have this new insight, this new moment of self-reflection. You have this new moment of self-awareness and all of a sudden you're closer to God because that happens, you know, and you all, you prayed and you got 35 goosebumps and like God was real for an afternoon, you know. We, we all have that, but let me tell you, let me tell you. The older I get, the more I have come to realize I have about a 24-hour attention span that if I don't daily spend time with God, it is so extraordinarily easy for me to lose focus and become self-dependent as opposed to being dependent on my Savior and be consumed with what happens here and now as opposed to remembering. Man, if I get God, then nothing else matters. If I get eternity with God, not even, not, even, not, not that I even deserved it or earned it, but it's that, that it's the free gift of God that he has given to us through his son Jesus that when he died on the cross, he died for our sins so that we could be made right with him. And the fact that I get that, and then the fact that he gives me the opportunity to be a participant in his story, that I might be able to, that we may be able to. You see, when I spend time with God, let me, I have a little bit of time. When I spend time with God, this is the difference that it makes. I go from have to to can. I go from can to may. And here's what I mean by that. For a lot of us, when we think about God again, it's this idea of, yeah, I got to do that. I got to trust. I got to be dependent on that stuff. But some of us played a game when we were little called Mother May I? And the answer was sometimes, yes, you may. With our kids, you know, it's this whole, you know, can I have that? Can I have that? Can I have that? We're working on please right now, but eventually we'll go from please to may I have that because here, here's what we want them to know. You may. You don't deserve. You may, though perhaps you may not have earned, but you are allowed to participate. You are allowed to have this. Yes, yes, you are in every single way loved, but you may participate. And the problem that we run into with God sometimes is that when we don't focus on him in the daily, we think that it's dependent on us, and in our self-dependence, we lose our eternal perspective. We see the here and now, and so now all of a sudden we feel like we have to be obedient to God. We have to act in faith. When, when Abraham saw this, he says, I, I just believe so deeply that I might be able to sacrifice because I believe so deeply that God is going to fulfill his promise so I will give up my son, not because I think my son is going to die, but because I believe so deeply in God. Moses saw all the riches of Egypt and said, you know what? I could care less because I get God. I get to be a part. I get to play a role. I get to be a part of the redemptive history of what God is doing on planet Earth. Here is my prayer and my hope for every single one of us that this week, specifically this week, we will spend time reading the Bible and praying. Here's my hope. If you have never read the Bible before, or if you are not currently reading the Bible, here's what I want you to do. The book of John, the book of John, not 1 John, though it gets a little bit wacky, okay? So the book of John, 
21 chapters. I want you to spend five minutes reading one chapter a day and five minutes praying, and that's it. Five minutes reading one chapter a day and five minutes praying, and that's it. That if you're in here and you're a Christian, I want you to engage God and engage with this word because I think that as we do that, our shift, our perspective shifts to what's eternal and not what's temporal. Perhaps for you, you've been, you've been following Jesus for a while, so it's longer. You spend, you know, 10 and 10 or 20 and 20 or, you know, 10 and 30 or, you know, however you want to split it up. Here's, here's, my, here's my point. We struggle, I struggle deeply with the ability to trust in God's faithfulness and not my own personal ability. And I struggle deeply with the thought of eternity and not just what's temporal. And I know that it is absolutely critical for each one of us to daily focus on Jesus because he is the author and he is the perfecter of our faith and he gives us the power, the ability, and the perspective to be able to live with faith that he has called us to. So today... Before you go to sleep, if you're a Christian, if you're trying to figure out Christianity, then, man, I just, you know, you should look at them and say, yeah, you should do that. But especially if you're a Christian, I want you to spend five minutes reading and five minutes praying. And if every single one of us does that for the entire week, we will come back next week or two weeks from now or three weeks from now, whenever you come back from spring break, wherever you're coming from, and you will have perhaps a perspective shift towards faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for for this time. God, I ask and I pray that you would help us all to fix our eyes on you. We get so distracted. We get so dependent on ourselves and our abilities. But God, would you help us As we go to you, as we fix our eyes on you, would you help each and every one of us to have the type of faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, the whole crew, as we believe in your faithfulness to fulfill your promises and are focused on eternity. I pray that you won't let our heads hit the pillow tonight before we spend time with you, our Heavenly Father. And that in doing that, you would stretch and grow our faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.